0: Welcome back to the Everybody Soccer Podcast. This is your host, Bill Reno. This week, we have Justin Bryant on the episode. Justin is a former professional goalkeeper, an accomplished writer, and the current goalkeeper coach for North Carolina State's women's soccer program, all of which we'll cover in the episode. I have really appreciated Justin's analysis over the years. It's clear he approaches a position with not only a wealth of knowledge from all the years he's played and coached, but also with a mind that really takes into account all the nuances in a given situation. He doesn't fall back on tired slogans or one-size-fits-all phrases and in general when everyone is looking at one thing he's able to pick up on a small detail that others miss. I've long wanted to pick his brain on his approach to goalkeeping and finally just ask him for an interview. So today you'll hear Justin talking about his autobiography called Small Time of Life in the Football Wilderness which I absolutely love the book's honesty and transparent display of professional football in England during the 80s and 90s but I'll let Justin recap the more uh, here in a second. The book is found on Amazon, by the way. We'll also cover his view on the entire country's approach to goalkeeping as a whole, including where the USSF is falling up short right now. And finally, we'll recap with a game that I came up with where I gave Justin just a variety of situations a goalkeeper coach might face and wanted to see how he would handle it personally. So there's not really a right or wrong answer for what we're looking for his response here on this last bit. I just wanna see how he would handle some curveballs. There's about a million more topics I'd love to talk to Justin about, so hopefully we'll get around two in the future, but this is what we got today. With all that out of the way, here's N C State goalkeeper coach Justin Bryant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for I just kinda of rode that for the rest of the season. Like, hey, remember remember Bill made remember that, 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 penalty. that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well it, I mean it it's a, a penalty save is is a goalkeeper's hat trick. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's it's the um just like a hat trick can sometimes be three tap-ins, it's not always a great save, but it's a situation where no one else can help, and all your teammates and everybody involved in the team is just sort of watching helplessly, and then if if you do step up and and manage to make a save there, then uh, it just gives such a lift to everybody, and you can definitely milk that for a long time. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. well, well, I do want to jump to the the small time the book that you wrote and i was trying to find was it 2013 when that came out is that uh yeah yeah okay. it was
1: published in 2000 summer 2013
0: okay perfect perfect yeah so i i cannot remember when i read it i want to say it was around 2016 17 um it was pretty soon after i saw it for the first time i was like oh okay this seems really up my speed um and like can you give like a really quick synopsis of the book for Listeners, but then also kind of tack on there. I feel like I was looking around trying to find this and other interviews and stuff, but I guess I was curious as to why you wrote the book because I I read Brad Friedel's biography and it was fine, you know. But like, and it's funny, I mean, he obviously did more than most goalkeepers, but the content in the book felt I don't know, it was kind of like, why am I reading this? Like, I could have read your Wikipedia page, I just didn't feel like there was a ton of insight there. Um, right. And I felt like you took a different direction with the book. So give a quick synopsis of it, but then also I guess I'm kind of curious as, as what was the, the point behind it, if I can say that. Yeah.
1: The synopsis of the book is it just covers the time period when I was playing. It um, doesn't really cover my time at Radford University. I, I, just, I have a longer-term project to write about that. That's, that would be um, a, a, definitely a subject unto itself. We didn't have much in the way of professional soccer in the country, uh, in 1987, when I decided to go to England. so the, the book covers uh, from when I first went to England in 1987, and so I finished playing in the old USISL in 1995. And um, I guess for, for you know the, the best synopsis of it would be it's, it's the story of, of what it was like to try to make a living you know in a, in a world where you weren't playing in a, in a top tier first division league. And what, you know, the grimier underside of lower division professional soccer is like. Um, Why I wrote it, I guess the simplest reason for that is I actually am a writer. So, you know, Brad's book, which I read too, he had a great career. Um, But as you said, it's just the book is just sort of a synopsis of his career without a ton of insight about how he felt about things. I wanted to do it for that reason. I wanted to sort of give insight to what it's like to be on the daily grind and the struggle when, you know, when every missed cross or mishandled back pass is, is potentially career ending because you just don't have any right, career right. security at that level. You don't have savings. You don't have long-term contract. You don't have endorsement deals. Didn't I didn't have an agent. So it's stressful. Yeah. Um, in a way part of the motivation to write it was, was a little bit of a reality check for a lot of what i would say like the typical american college goalkeeper who thinks he'll play you know mid-major d1 soccer then go have a pro career in europe and you know it's much harder than that you are one of uh, there are a thousand goalkeepers of that age in europe who are better than you uh, and, yeah. and it's it's not to say that 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 it can't be done but it's it's Going to be really difficult. Uh, the, the level of competition, it just in a training session, is very high and very cutthroat. I, I think I described that about my time at Dunfermline Athletic, where you have, you know, there's always there's always a couple of guys in the team that are very very competitive about even the small sided games and training, and they get yeah. extremely upset if those don't go well. And as a goalkeeper, you're you're beholden to that level of, of competition. Um, Speaking a little bit more from the literary side of things, the decision to write the book, one of the things I did, I actually started writing when I was still playing uh, in the early 90s, and I I began keeping a journal of every game I played. So when I was at Bournemouth FC in England, I would come home from games, and I would write a couple-page synopsis of how the game went from my perspective. So I would sort of, at the top, really perfunctorily list the date, the opponent, the weather conditions, the condition of the pitch, the crowd size, the score, and then I would narrate out the game, how it went while it was still fresh in my memory from my perspective, or, you know, I in the about about twenty minutes in I came for a cross and punched it clear and felt pretty good about that. Yeah. But then five minutes later, et cetera, et cetera. So it just sort of kept a running tabulation of how all the game went. And um and I did that, you know, for the entirety of that season. I didn't do it the year I played in in the USISL in 1995, but um, I had some newspaper reports of a lot of those games. And so, again, one of the reasons I decided to, to, to write the book, I really just wrote it for my own sake. That, that I thought it would be nice to have my career encapsulated in one narrative body of work that I could sit down and read in 30 years
0: if I felt like doing that. You hit, man, you hit so many things there. I had like. a million questions about um (laughs) so uh first when you talked about coming back to the u.s the u.s isl that's the the predecessor of the usl correct yes okay and that was with orlando is that right
1: no it's actually the coco expos Um, Oh,
0: okay
1: the orlando lions were in that league too but um I had last played for the Lions in 1988,
0: uh, okay. and then gone okay.
1: off to England and Scotland. And then by the time I was back in Florida, I sort of there was nobody involved in the Lions at that point that I still had any real relationship with. And so it it made more sense. The the Bay Expos were the more local team to sure. me. I was living in Merritt Island at the time.
0: Okay, so so I, I guess I'm just curious about when you and you said you didn't write about. I, that, that journal process, that was really, I mean, that was a really fascinating idea for me as I'm like thinking back through of like what that must have taken for you. Um, Cause I feel like now there's like, I mean, this is probably similar for most goalkeepers, but there's probably three or four games I, c- I can really remember, but the rest are you know kind of washed out. Um, but I guess coming back to the U S was it just not as romantic to write about the U S game as it was in England or I, I guess I'm curious why the, why the drop off there.
1: It was because I wasn't enjoying it. Uh, the USISL was a pretty thoroughly miserable experience for me. <laughs> and I, I say that despite the fact that it was probably the best soccer I ever played. Oh. I was I was mature as a goalkeeper by that point. I was 28 years old, I turned 29 a little bit later in the season. Um, had had, you know, a few years in the harsh realities of the English non leagues. And, and um, I. I Pretty much, had figured out what I was. Had some good coaching, and and I'd figured out what I was doing by that point. So I I, I knew, you know, I I I had things like starting position and anticipation, reading of the game, communication, sure. and kicking distribution. All that stuff was was good. Yeah, all that stuff had finally caught up with my shot stopping, which is what had you know been the only asset I really had as as a younger goalkeeper. What I w- wasn't uh, so thrilled about was just it was there was such a lack of professionalism and support in that league. It really isn't any one person's fault or even any group of people. There just wasn't any interest in the league. I mean, right, right. And, and, So if you don't have fan support driving it economically, then there's not going to be the resources to, for the players to be treated as, as players might expect to be treated. One of the things that was so enjoyable about playing in England is that it's a small country um, and, that, and the travel makes sense. And you might play a game, you know, on a Tuesday night at, uh, at St. Albans City, and there might be a thousand people there in a little ground with a low roof over it. And that feels like a really good atmosphere. You know, they, they, they kick up a pretty good atmosphere. Yeah. And, and it makes sense that you went and play that game. In the U.S. ISL, we would pile into a couple of vans that may or may not have working air conditioning <laughs> and drive nine hours to knoxville tennessee and play a game in front of 77 people yeah and then you'd get back in those vans and you'd, you'd maybe stay a night in a cheap outdoor hallway hotel you would eat at fast food sure. restaurants and then you would get home at, at four in the morning um so the soccer was fine and i i, I like i said I, I played well i think one of the reasons and i might be jumping ahead again on you here but <laughs> all right two things are actually related i think i played well that year because i i was not i didn't really put that much pressure on myself mm. because i recognized this is kind of meaningless in small time and so i was relaxed about it and and obviously if you can hit a sort of sweet spot between confident and relaxed and also not overly self-pressured right uh, you you you'll turn in some pretty good performances
0: right right um do, do you you talked about all that kind of the um away from the field stuff kind of i guess bringing down your career mentally i guess i'm thinking of like hey, i'm sure y'all are covered pretty well at nc state so i can imagine like some of the players i feel like i ran into this a little bit with one of, one of the colleges i was working at where the players would complain about something and i just i was thinking back when i was playing in college and it was like it was kind of around that level as far it was a lot of subway a lot of subway i remember that and um they would complain about this this or that in my head i'm just thinking like man you have no idea like how bad it can get like it, this is not even close you know you don't it can go way way worse here so um yeah i'm sure yeah i'm sure that's something yeah, you can run into for sure. here
1: i mean i'm glad that, that i'm glad that uh that our players don't know that yes it yeah. <laughs> kind of even exists yeah I, I i it's a shame though that that you know i i know i know some some guys that uh, that play in USL today in the various divisions of USL or NASL in, in more recent years,
0: and unfortunately,
1: in some parts of the country, at some at some clubs, these kind of things are still are yeah. still going on, and players are still sort of changing after a game, sharing one bathroom, and yeah. taking cold showers and that kind of thing. Um, and and that's too bad. I I'm looking forward to the day where we've moved beyond that.
0: Kind of age out of that. No, I I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, I I certainly like the idea of how you put it. Of, like for them to grow up not knowing that. Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> I really like that idea. Yeah. Um, well, going uh, going back with the book, I there was a couple of, oh, there's more than like a couple of things, but there's a couple of things I want to bring up that I really liked. Uh, first of all, I thought the cover was, I just thought it was so perfect because you can tell that the person in the picture, which is obviously you, it mean, like the picture means more to you than it does to someone just passing by. I mean, like you you look at the picture and some kind of tracksuit, next to like a field that's got a bald spot on the, on the, you know, right where the keeper is and the stands aren't, you know, that massive. And anyone walking by, it's like, Oh, what, you know, what is, it's just this guy standing here. But I thought it really just summed up this idea of kind of you chasing this dream and how this meant more to, you know, Justin at, you know, age 23 or whatever, whatever age there is there at that. And I, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of a perfect picture, but you know, you talked about that journaling process. I really liked the, um, there's all those tidbits in there, and I'm really jealous now that you, you talked about that I hadn't done that on my end. Um, I think my favorite, and again, it's been a few years since I've read it, but my favorite bit is this one part in here. I don't know if you'll remember or not, but you talked about handling a, a shot that was either, like, hit off the floor or volleyed at you from, like, a really close range distance, and you just caught it clean. And there was this exchange of view and the striker of, like, confusion on his part of, like, how did you do that? And <laughs> you just... I and I just like I I can certainly see, you know I, I I've witnessed that before in a game where like the strike and the keeper have this like very brief like what, <laughs> and so I lo- I love that sort of tidbit stuff in there, um, you know again going back to I don't I'm not just trying to trash Brad Friedel I, I really enjoy him as a goalkeeper but I I that was one thing I really appreciated about your book was all these little tidbits in there, like um, well I mean real in, life.
1: in yeah in fairness. I had to talk about the tidbits because I didn't have oh. glamour. <laughs> yeah, you know, so the, this, the, this there true. wasn't really the glamorous side of it of playing yeah. in front of 8,000 people or, or, or you know, signing a massive contract. So it sure, really sure. is—it really is more about where, where do you find the joy? And, yeah. and one of the things I hope—I've had some people say it's kind of a depressing book—but um, one of the things I hope comes through is that w- one thing I never lost, even in the frustrations of the way the, the league was run in, in the U.S. in the old U.S. ISL. I never lost the, the sort of pure tactile joy of playing in goal. And that, that, that save you mentioned, I still think about that. I mean, I still can remember the way, <laughs> the feeling. you know, the, yeah. I was twisted at a weird angle and the ball just hit, hit my gloves and stuck there from a very close range. And it, that's just so fun. Yeah. You yeah. know, to this day, I just turned 53 and to this day I still love jumping in goal. If the, you know, only on a good pitch, um, <laughs> And uh, the feeling of, of making saves, throwing yourself around, and yeah, diving. Yeah. For those of us who do it, and it's difficult to explain to people who don't do it, but for those of us who do choose to do that, it's a, a joyous thing and it's punctuated in these, these moments of, of expression in like saving a penalty or, or making a, an unexpected save, and you do have that quick little exchange with the striker. Like, they just yeah, can't believe yeah that you manage to keep that one out. And that certainly works both ways because every now and then they'll swivel and hit one right in the top corner. And yeah. and you can't believe they did that. That's <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The bargain. That's the deal that you sign up for with goalkeeping.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's kind of a weird aspect of goalkeeping that it's so fun to stop someone from trying to accomplish something, you know, it's <laughs> so just, yeah. just that, uh, like that exchange you're talking about. Yeah. I just, always very yeah. funny to me. Um, well, you brought it up just briefly there, and I was going to ask you about this, and I couldn't remember if it was more like my mental state at the time, because I was kind of in transition from a couple different things, and it was, you know, it was I, I felt really kind of out of sorts and out of place. But um, I, I'm curious of when you talked about your time in England, or when you're writing about your time in England, um, I I feel like I was remembering a kind of a depressive undertone, like an intentionally written one of. Um, Either someone that was like getting close to, or was in depression, of being of handling stuff off the field. And I I'm trying to remember exactly, but I remember you, you writing about stuff of like just taking like really long walks at night, or like uh, you're like kind of struggling with eating. Um, and I'm kind of curious about again that inclusion there, but but also like the um it, one if that's accurate, <laughs> uh, for my for my recollection, but also too, Um I guess yeah, just how that all that all played within itself, you know, what was the point of the, I guess, inclusion there? And then also, is that accurate as far, on my memory?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think, uh, you know, I would probably use the term anxiety more than depression. I think, I think what I went through for a lot of years, starting back then, as it was pretty classic case of, of chronic anxiety, related strongly to trying to make a living as a professional soccer player. And that in itself was, tied into the bigger idea of a sense of identity so as a young guy who had decided as a very young kid that the only acceptable way for me to live my life was to be a professional soccer player to be a professional goalkeeper i uh i just sort of had that additional pressure on myself to make it so i have no doubt that that contributed to the sort of Becoming someone who lived with, with chronic anxiety, and it manifested itself pretty strongly in England because one of the things I realized there is that any good work I had done as a goalkeeper prior to that no longer counted for anything because nobody knew about it. Mm. It's different now with every game being on you know, videoed and, and, and your whatever uh, track record and accomplishments you may have. They, they can go with you places but it, they couldn't in the 80s. And so I, you know, felt pretty good for a while growing up in Florida, ending up at Radford University, a Division I school on a scholarship. I was the first player from my part of Florida, I think the entire county, to get a Division One scholarship. So uh, yeah. that had been a goal, you know, when I was in high school and I accomplished it. And everyone who knew me in Florida growing up knew that about me. So I sort of felt like I had this, resume that followed me around that sort of that that, that was uh, a a sense of accomplishment and a tangible one scholarship d1 i started goalkeeper d1 you know that worked out nicely and then i went to england and that was gone instantly and not only was it gone nobody cared even if they knew it didn't count for anything and i had to prove myself all over again in a very different environment where Although I did know the language, it's still a different country. I didn't know anybody outside of the few people I got to know, you know, at, at Bournemouth, And nothing I'd done as a goalkeeper to that point carried over. And it's, it was such a different game. Um, you know, I, I think people could probably use their imaginations to, to figure out what non-league, what lower <laughs> division professional yeah. soccer was like in the 80s. In England, it was cold, muddy, pitches rain very physical soccer very direct lots of aerial stuff lots of crosses um, nothing at all like even in today in England uh, if, you, if you if you you know get on Twitter and, and look up like Bournemouth FC and see the stadium they play in now and then the state of the pitch it's it's night and day different <laughs> yeah. it's a, a, th- a thousand times better because the investment in the game is better even at the grassroots level although the not not for everybody, but, but Bournemouth has, has sort of hitched their wagon to Arsenal ladies. and, mm. and uh, That's where the Arsenal ladies play, and so they've, they've gotten a lot of investment that way. Okay. But yeah, so the, you know, going back to the issue of my, my mental state at the time, I was riddled with anxiety. And, and the way it, it manifested me back then is it made me feel sick a lot. I had a hard time eating. I would get a lot of queasiness, especially at night. Especially, uh, and it wasn't really related to the games. but you know, I've always, I've been a little disappointed. A couple of the, the, the book got pretty universally good reviews, but a lot of the reviewers missed the point of that. And they thought it was like pregame nerves. I was uh, like crippled, yeah. riddled with pregame nerves. It really wasn't that. It was bigger. I wasn't yeah. worried about the next day's game. I was worried about the bigger picture, the next two years, the next five years, um, and so I, I let the bigger picture stuff weigh me down pretty heavily and and it was hard to figure out how to deal with that and so yeah, I got to know uh the town of Bournewood, Hertfordshire, pretty well because there were a lot of nights I just couldn't sleep yeah and i would I would walk I would just sort of walk the streets at night. It's kind of a miracle knowing what I know now about yeah. the area that that nobody yeah chased me or 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 threw anything at me or or anything like that but um you know, goalkeeping is a a a a challenge mentally for anybody because yeah. it's a, a position where actually during the game we have time to reflect on what's happening mm-hmm. in the game and what it might mean about us as players. And you know, midfielders and outfield players, to their great benefit, don't have the time to dwell on things that happen in the game. But what we kind of do. And um, yeah, it was those were difficult years. I don't. I don't. You know I do not over romanticize any of that yeah. you know it would be I would love a, a redo on some things I did and decisions I made back then but I would not want to live those years all over again because look I was a young guy I was 22 23 years old I wasn't fully emotionally mature and what I was stepping into was asking a lot of, of anybody from an emotional standpoint and so I, I you know I paid a price for several
0: years for that yeah well I'm wondering with and this gives me a perfect time for a transition here. So thank you for that. <laughs> but I'm wondering with the college game, um, I imagine that a lot of things you talk about with anxiety, but even, I mean, yes, <clears throat> some of the video will follow high school club players to college, but there is a pretty big resetting process with those incoming freshmen of, you know, where where they were in the pecking order and where they are now. You know, they're they're having to start back over. So I would imagine as someone who's, play to that, um, the fluidity that comes with the college game, um, and not, and to put on top of all that, I mean, 1822, there's a lot of off the field stuff that is, a you know, going through people's lives that's going to affect, you know, how they approach the team and the game. Um, so I imagine there's probably been a pretty easy transition from going through that yourself, and then also being able to assist those who are in a, a pretty chaotic time, even though it's the same country at the end of the day, they haven't gone to another place like that. But um, is that something you, you've experienced with in your coaching in the college level?
1: Yeah, occasionally. Um, I think I'm pretty well positioned because of my experiences to spot someone mm. who might be uh, struggling with some element of the transition. The, the fortunate thing is that now uh, these days we've got such good support staff at the college level. Uh, our team has, a sports psychologist they have a nutritionist they have an academic coordinator a strength and conditioning coach and then of course the actual coaching staff so that there's there's all these levels of help and assistance where people are professionally qualified to recognize when someone might be struggling and in need of a little low, a little help and then then get them that help before it turns into an unmanageable problem and they need to step away and, and right. you know and can no longer manage the requirements of being a student athlete um, so it hasn't really been something that's, that I've, where I, I've needed to step in in too many cases just because the support staff is, is so good now. But there have been smaller instances where I think sometimes one of the things players think about coaches is that we were all perfect model players <laughs> yeah. and coaches' pets, and that's why we went into coaching and we always did the right thing and made the right decisions off the field and set a great example for our teammates. Uh, and, and are were sort of a, a glowing unattainable standard uh, uh, as a player who then just transitioned into coaching. Mm. And, and of course that's not, that's almost never uh, the case. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and so there's been times where players maybe aren't that comfortable uh, confiding to a coach because that's what they imagine. He won't understand because, you know, he probably was uh, the model college student. I was, probably a, a just terrible headache to my coaches at radford <laughs> university i, I was yeah. a, a pretty important recruit for them um they they you know had only recently gone division one and then they knew they needed uh you know to invest in in someone that could come in and, and be the starting goalkeeper and uh, that was me and then i i you know i came to radford unprepared for life as a student and so i got in, in all sorts of academic trouble fairly early on and then i was Emotional, and I would sort of freak out and blame teammates during the game and mm. and training and things like that. So, so I was far from that that sort of model player, and I think because of that, I'm I'm maybe a little more sympathetic to the kids who.
0: Who are like that
1: also? Like I can sort of it's been thirty-five years or however long it's been since I, I went to Redford as a freshman, but I can I can see kids that remind me of myself and know yeah it yeah. didn't work out that well for me, <laughs> when, you know in, in in the first year or two until I sort of got my act together and yeah. so this this person could maybe use a, a gentle nudge in, in the right direction.
0: I, I was listening. I'm trying to remember what what podcast it was. I think it was Inside the Eighteen, but I was listening with with one with you and you had made the comment. Um, you didn't want to be a dinosaur <laughs> and um and i think I think you know there's probably a lot of different ways people could phrase stuff and they end up it sounds like they're saying different things, but you know they're just using kind of different verbiage so they're saying the same thing so but so I realized that so no goalkeeper coach really wants to be a dinosaur um but it does seem like some are um very old school and some have kind of progressed on to other things, so I guess I'm curious about. Uh, the success that you've seen that has put out, I mean, you, you've gone through it, you've coached through it, but there was kind of an old school model there that has produced so many goalkeepers. Um, but you seem someone, you talk about, you know, working with the youth and um, really with a, a massive slew of ages there. Um, you've worked with so many, it seems like there's a real intent there to stay modern so I guess I'm curious about that that grind there of um, you know why not stay a dinosaur why not stick with stuff that's quote unquote worked in the past um, right yeah, how, yeah you f- could,
1: that's a that's a really good question I guess the first thing I would say and this is a, a big point of of debate and contention but I'm not so sure anything has worked in the past mm. I think I think we've badly underproduced goalkeepers in this country and I think a few guys playing in the Premier League in the 2000s. Um, papered over the cracks of that um i remember being in some discussions at the federation level about goalkeeper curriculum and everybody whistling past the graveyard thinking and saying basically saying everything's fine we've got brad friedel and casey keller in the premier league and my contention is that those guys got themselves there they they were not although they they did come through the american system the the greatest evidence for that that I have is that there's nobody there now right. it didn't keep happening it didn't keep working So if what was supposedly working had worked it wouldn't have stopped after just a handful of guys. there was also obviously Marcus Hanneman and 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 Tim Howard who we still have playing and a couple other guys Jurgen Sommer, Ian Foyer etc um, So my contention all along has been it hasn't worked that well the old school stuff, I think what we've done as a country pretty well is we've been able to produce a lot of pretty good goalkeepers, but nowhere near the number of elite goalkeepers we should have had. And any number of European countries, such as Spain, Germany, France, Italy, have produced way more what I would call elite goalkeepers. Sure. In fact, I think I think you could argue we're still on zero of those <laughs> right now. Um, then the second thing, uh, the second point is that the game, people will say the game has changed, and they'll say it that in sort of vague, nebulous terms. The rules are actually different. There's actually different laws in the game now um, regarding certainly the biggest one being being the back-pass law. Right, right. And so the way the game was, was, the way the position was was coached in the 80s where we set the groundwork for what an American goalkeeper is and then what people would use as, as what was evidence of the successful model of how we developed goalkeepers that then ended up overseas, was predicated on a different sport. It was predicated on, on, a, on a position that, that dealt with a lot more aerial challenges and needed big, strong goalkeepers to sort of withstand the aerial, aerial bombardment sure. that you got in a time when no one was interested in playing out of the back. And the laws were literally different, and the goalkeeper didn't have to be a soccer player. Didn't have to be proficient with their feet. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. when you start from the, from the default position of we want the goalkeeper to play out of the back, the first thing that happens then is the effectiveness of a physique type like Brad Friedel goes way down. Uh, Marcus Hanneman, uh, even Casey Keller, his years in MLS where he finished his career in Seattle where he did some good work in goal, we're certainly not. I don't. I don't think even Casey himself would, would say we're marked by what we would consider today's standard of of professional level distribution. Sure. Um, he sort of stayed on his line and made saves. He's brilliant at that. Casey's one of my, my favorite goalkeepers of all time. So the whole you know anti dinosaur got to change with times thing. Part of that is is really it's the game is actually different. Um, you know, not just how we play it, but but the actual laws of the game. You've got to be proficient with your feet. you've got to be comfortable playing under pressure. You've got to be comfortable playing splitting passes, not just simple passes to an unmarked outside back. So it just stands the reason that the, the kind of athlete that's good at that isn't really going to be six foot four, 235 pounds. Sure. So if you look at the top goalkeepers in the world today on both the male and the female side, you see a lot more lean physique. You see Christiane Endler on the women's side. You see Larice and De Gea and All Black on the men's side. And just a couple of generations ago, or even one generation ago, everyone was bigger. Um, certainly on the men's side, uh, people talk about height today, and there still are a lot of tall goalkeepers, but the bulk that you used to see is not so much in evidence because, because that just doesn't really jibe well with with a goalkeeper being a, an extra outfield player. So. So that's you know, and so then, and then okay, and then and then there's another <laughs> element to it which is, and uh, you know you're gonna get me off on a on, on no a keep going keep going. Here, so. <laughs> so then there's the simple shot stopping thing of of how we used to train goalkeepers to make saves involved a, a very large number of reps, mm. so a lot of repetition, working the goalkeeper to exhaustion with the the, the philosophy behind it, which I don't think. I don't recall anyone ever sitting down and articulating it and justifying it this way. I don't think anyone ever justified it. I think we just thought if we hammer them with a million repetitions of this
0: yeah, in one training session, they'll out, get good yeah. at it. Yeah, 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 they'll, yeah.
1: Get, they'll get good at it. And so what was sort of missing from that equation is, well, as we get tired, as we exhaust the glycogen fuel in a goalkeeper's quads, they can't perform the activity with the proper technique. I very clearly remember going through training sessions where the activity was me diving from post to post from multiple balls being served out of the hand, and it only takes – I don't care how fit you are. I was, I was as, as fit as any other pro back then. You, you have a limited amount of quick energy source in your, in your muscles that burn out very fast, and now you're this wobbly-legged – <laughs> um, uncoordinated mess yeah, yeah. and you' you 're struggling across your line and you 're improvising in ways that that compromise your technique, so you know that that had to go away that that had to end because that 's not a good way to teach a young goalkeeper technique who doesn 't have it yet and it 's not a good way for a professional who does have the technique to refine it and keep it sharp it's it 's actually going into a situation where you 'll never be in, in a game um So I guess, you know, not wanting to be a dinosaur and and wanting to stay modern, it comes from sort of recognizing that the way we used to do some of those things wasn't really good. Now, there are plenty of things we used to do that are still relevant today. Sure. Just in a slightly different framework that doesn't physically exhaust the goalkeeper, that maybe gives them a little recovery time in between actions, and that includes playing the ball with the feet a little bit more. Sure.
0: Well, I, I'm, try- I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but I'm trying to think of, like, I guess I hadn't really thought about the, the real logic behind those high reps stuff. And I, I think the one thing that could possibly be a positive out of it, but, I mean, I, the, the main concern for me is just, like, how many times you're hitting the ground, you know? And, There's that too, and, yeah. you know, your body has a limit, you know? But I, I do think from, like, a, for a young goalkeeper, you talked about having that time to, like, sit and reflect – In those sort of situations, it's kind of a fear tactic, which isn't really great, to be honest. But it's kind of this fear tactic of like, hey, you got to go. Like, you don't have time to sit and like think about, oh, how did this save? How did this save go? So it kind of builds up that mentality of like you've got to kind of commit in a little more and think less. But, I mean, that's like one positive (laughs) I can really think of with the, the slew of negatives in there. And, yeah,
1: and, you know, I mean, obviously it's fitness training too, sure, which, yeah, does, yeah. It, which is important. If, if you're at a. See, I, I don't really concern myself with fitness training in my sessions because the team has a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and, and that's all monitored and taken care of. When they come to me, it's, it's a pure goalkeeping thing. But if you're not, you know, in a situation like that where you need to incorporate fitness into your sessions, then there's a way to do it that, that involves goalkeeping. And, and so it's, it's not all bad. That's why I say that there are some elements of it, of, of some of the stuff we did back in the '80s that was popular with the, you know, the Joe Matchnick and Tony DiChio camps, all that, and yeah. th- what, what they call pressure training. Um, some of that stuff still has some relevancy. It just, uh, I just, I just don't think that it, it's it yeah. should be the basis of of goalkeeper sessions.
0: Yeah. Um, I, when we talk about, you mentioned something about being in talks with the federation uh, a little bit ago. Um, I. I th- for me, it seems like the, the goalkeeping landscape in the country feels very fractured in a lot of ways as far as, it, everyone feels kind of king of their own mountain sort of situation of, hey, I, I do this and I like it and there's no one really to tell me that it's wrong. Um, and so I guess I'm curious of someone who's been around on a number of different, you know, playing, coaching and so many different levels. Um, there obviously is like a real lack of, and th- there could be more investment from the Federation with the position. Um, but as someone who's kind of in the grind at a, at a pretty high level, what is something specific that you like to see the USSF kind of step up to and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to commit to doing this?
1: Well, you know, having, having a curriculum yeah. to start yeah. with, you know, <laughs> we still don't have one. And, and you said fractured earlier, and, and that is the biggest factor to me. The biggest factor is that for a very long time in this country, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but maybe not everyone knows it. There were, there are two main bodies of, of coaching education, the Federation and then, and then what was known as the NSCAA and is now USC, United soccer coaches. And, um, they existed, they coexisted peacefully if uneasily for a pretty long time. And, and Tony DeChico was, was, uh, the director of the goalkeeping education curriculum for the NSCAA. And Tony is somebody who, who, Did his his best to modernize his ideas and stay with the times as as the game evolved. He evolved with it. Um, But there was, you know, things finally came to a head in this this uneasy relationship. The reason for this is that the Federation didn't like that people could go get coaching licenses elsewhere, and they wanted them to have to come through the Federation. And so they made a decision that you couldn't have any national team position either with obviously the senior national team or more pertinently with the the various youth national team programs, unless you did your licensing through them. Um, And that was a pretty significant blow to the goalkeeper education side of things through the NSCAA to the point where now people don't know what to do to to get their licenses, And, and the only way to do it is through the federation, and the federation is only just developing their goalkeeper curriculum, and it's very expensive. And um, early reviews on it, uh, I'll say from people I've spoken to, aren't glowing. <laughs> so, it, so if you you know, and then there's this idea, as 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 I know you saw, where we're sending goalkeepers and coaches to Bundesliga clubs to observe yeah, yeah. And, and and making that as part of the curriculum. So you know, some of the things I would I would like to see is um, a, a more holistic effort to to come up with a a national curriculum that that suits the needs of of the country and goalkeeper education beyond the youth national team level because it seems like everything the federation does is geared just for that. Uh, And um, a lot of their ideas and a lot of the requirements in coaching licenses are predicated on the idea that everybody has the resources of a youth national team, has an entire – Pitch to, for every training session, and on the goalkeeping side, they have full use of all the outfield players for each activity that they design for the goalkeepers. So, I just would like to see more real-world realism reflected in in the final product of, of the curriculum. Understanding yeah. that that most coaches aren't going to have those
0: resources available to them. Yeah. Now, I, um, I I think that is a pretty good anchor for you know, I, I'm thinking with the, you know, the resources I've, I've had at various levels and somehow, some, there's a lot, some, there's not a ton, but to have some sort of anchor there of, Hey, this is like, this is what we should be trying to do as opposed to like, okay, well, you know, I, you know, I could not that I would do this, but like, I could tell them to, you know, they should stand on their hands to, to save a shot, you know, and everyone's like, well, okay, you know, you're the goalkeeper guy. Like, you go ahead and do your thing that I don't feel like I have enough oversight over me from like the soccer body uh, from the Federation to be like, hey, this is what you should be doing. Um, it certainly would be nice <laughs> to, have, to have a little more oversight there, or at least like an anchor to look back like, okay, hey, like this is what we're trying to do. You know, we're on this track here. Um, so that would be kind of ideal. No, I, I really like that. I, the The director's kind of thing I've I've kind of honed in on or the lack of one. Uh, with the federation, but I think even just a curriculum would be a nice starting spot for, for every coach really. So
1: yeah, it would. I mean, you and I have talked about this before about what is the identity of the American goalkeeper, yeah, yeah. and and we're not going to have one without a a, uh, a unified message from the federation doing the coaching education and getting everyone on the same page about what that should look like, and and we're we're also. We're not going to have one if that message that they come up with doesn't reflect the reality of the clubs where these, these yeah. kids are actually you know, being coached and, and being developed. We're not going to have one if it doesn't acknowledge the various cultural influences that we have on our game from, from Latin American countries. Our, we've almost always in this country taken our coaching education cues from Europe, yeah. Yeah. and we, we probably have a lot more in common with Central and, and South America certainly in terms of of you know the ethnic makeup of a lot of the kids that yeah, end up yeah. in the youth national team programs and so it, it would it would really make sense to sort of work with what we have rather than to swim against the stream and try to come up with uh, you know our version of the, the german
0: model or the dutch model sure sure no absolutely uh, i'm going to wind down on this uh, this is kind of a outside the box idea but i was kind of I was trying to think of ways to just steal information from your brain. So I feel like this was, <laughs> this was one way to do it. Um, but I've got five hypothetical scenarios. Uh, and these are all goalkeepers that in these, in these alternate realities that you, you would have had or you would be training with. Um, and kind of the point, is there's really no wrong answer, but, um, to the point is to like give you a, a scenario, and then just kind of hear about like how you would handle it. So it can go, you can talk specifically on the training side. You can talk about the on-field um, kind of where you want them to focus on or, or not to focus on, or how you just handle them in general. Um, so you have, I'm going to give you five goalkeepers, and you just and you can reference a real-life example as well if that fits. That's fine by me. Um, but I'm going to give you five fictional goalkeepers here, uh, and then you just give the feedback of, how You would handle them. Does that make sense? Did I explain that correctly? I think so. <laughs> okay, Let's give it a okay. shot. We'll All right, here we go. All right, so kid, kid number one here. Um, that completely, uh, just super fragile self confidence, really good, really decent goalkeeper. When they're playing at their top, they're with it, you know, they're, they're making really good saves. Um, but one mistake will kind of spiral them, uh, and you'll be able to see the body language, it'll drop, and um, it'll just be this big snowball of more and more errors. But when they're playing well, they're really good. They're, they're a top goalkeeper for their age group. But self-confidence is, is a major factor there.
1: Well, I think one of the things that, that we have to do as coaches is give our goalkeepers tools to quickly recover from what they might perceive as a mistake in the actual game. So, um, you know, what I might, I might call a trigger where you, you tell a goalkeeper, if, if something goes wrong, if the worst happens, worst-case scenario, and you give up a, a really bad goal – you you know you give yourself five seconds to dwell on it, and then some physical gesture. You snap both your fingers or you just clap your palms together twice, something that says, okay, it's gone. And, and look, the, the human brain, especially at a young age, is going to work the way it, it wants to work. But it's funny that, you, you know, that younger developing goalkeepers, if you tell them that a gesture like this will help them move on from it, They'll put a lot of stock in that in a lot of cases, and and, and it can help them do that. So the first thing, I, the, the first place I start is let's deal with what I, with with getting them back on track just for that one game, um, if something goes wrong in the game, and then secondly, to try to sort of make things better going forward in the bigger picture, I think I think that that goalkeepers need to be reminded that we don't have a sport without goals. There will be goals scored. Um, and that's part of the the deal so so that they can't go into it and with every training session. And I I see this, you know, I see these never beaten slogans like that and all that that we need to understand the reality here. Not only will you give up goals, some of those goals will be mistakes. Some of those will be, you know, where you would desperately love a do over and and roll back time by 45 seconds and fix, fix that. But you don't get that luxury. So, it's really important, I think that you that, that you help out young goalkeepers understand that um, that in a competitive environment, mistakes and frustration are part of the deal, and you just sell them on what the upside is you know here's here's what you get for that you get to be the player that influences the result of the game more than any other player on the field, and I think the best way you do that is is through enhancing their sense of competition. So um, if you have a goalkeeper that's only worried about their own performance in in training, if you're playing a -a six-a-side game to big goals in training, and the goalkeeper's thinking about themselves, am I doing this right, is my positioning correct, et cetera, that goalkeeper is is going to
0: struggle when
1: compared to the goalkeeper who really wants their team to win that game, if that's their, their prime focus. When you take a little bit of the focus off themselves and a little bit of the pressure for for every little decision they're making and and try to get them to think about the bigger picture of let's win the game. That's the goal here. I think it can help. I think it can help. I think I think that what you're describing is something you see with kids that are actually on the brighter side of things. They're, They're like smart, bright, deep thinking, introspective kids. And I hate to say this, but that's not always the best trait for a young goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah, And we have to get them out of their own heads in some way if we can.
0: Yeah. All right, you passed that one. Good job. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, All right, so number two here. Uh, pretty good kid. You really like working with them. Um, they'll work hard. They'll do everything you ask of them. Um, but their parent is really annoying. Uh, and they're kind of always breathing down your neck of, hey, this is, you know, they're either, you know, implying you're doing your job incorrectly or trying to tell you how to do your job. Um, you know, maybe during the game, the parent's just screaming at the kid. You know, it's not helping, obviously. Um, but the kid, really good goalkeeper. You like working with them, nothing wrong there, but you've got this looming parent in the background. Yeah, I <laughs> I
1: I, I'm, I know that a lot of, People can relate to this situation. Um, I, I think even well-meaning parents sometimes overstep their bounds. And then there's there's also people who I'm sure in their daily life are wonderful people, but something about you know youth sport brings out the worst in them. Sure. Um, I, I really, it's funny. My advice probably wouldn't be too helpful to a lot of <laughs> coaches out there because I'm I'm older than those parents. Oh yeah. yeah. You know I'm 53 now um i'm 53 here in 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 you know where i live in raleigh obviously i'm I'm a goalkeeper coach at nc state um i don't really get challenges to my authority as a coach i'm sure i did at some point and that might sound arrogant but it just doesn't happen really now sure i think that i think because google is out there and people could you know i think most people have a, a, a enough self-awareness to, to to know they probably if they are in fact a um a real estate agent or a water <laughs> quality control specialist or whatever whatever sure. important profession they might have they're not qualified to, to sort of to come at me that way i get the occasional leading question you know I've, I, in the past i've had are you sure it's a good idea to and i just I'm never really that interested in convincing people that if I feel good about what I'm doing, yeah, um, then I I don't really feel the need to convince anyone else. I've had the occasional question over the years, going back, just to just to just to be completely humble here, where a parent who has no background in the game has said something that actually made me think, wait a minute, yeah, that's not the that's not crazy. Yeah. It might be onto something there. So I think we do have to be open to feedback and criticism, even from sources we might consider unqualified but in the scenario you're talking about if it's if it's a parent who's just too vocal too in the way um and and perhaps undermining things with the with the goalkeeper at home or when they're away from you as the coach then there does need to be some level of of intervention. Um, again, Considering I'm older than these people now I really don't have a problem just saying in a friendly tone leave this to me yeah <laughs> or or find someone else to do it then take him somewhere else yeah, um, go the yeah. I, I don't know I, I you know I, I try to make that I'm, I'm trying to say that without it sounding um, too arrogant or <laughs> even worse than that like I don't care about what happens to the kid right right. But right look, there are some irredeemable cases out there. Sure. I think we probably, any coach you talk to will have cases of a parent where there just, there isn't any way to resolve it. And, and the only thing you can suggest is that, okay, if you're not happy here, then, then I I encourage you to look elsewhere. Okay. Uh,
0: The third one's somewhat similar to the first one, but uh, it may be more applicable for the NC state kids you're working with right now. But, uh, essentially, another decent goalkeeper, but uh the, they've got off the field issues that are clearly being brought onto the field, and they're having trouble disconnecting. Um, I'll say, you know, one of the even, <laughs> she's nine. She was talking about at the end of the spring the the test, the exit test they were doing to to, to finish the grade and go on to the next one, and she was talking about how stressed she was <laughs> with those. Which for me was kind of funny because it's like, you know, these I don't know these third grade tests can't be that tough, right? Um, but uh, yeah. yeah. So I, you probably see a little more with at NC State as far as school stuff, but whether it's like kind of a dating situation or home life, uh, a goalkeeper that's bringing on uh, kind of this baggage that if they were free of it, they could train well and they'd be a good goalkeeper, but they've got something hanging over their head.
1: Well, that's where I get the luxury of calling in the professional. Yeah, you know, so so I can go to our sport our team sports psychologist, and say, look, I think player X might having some issues you you may want to speak to them about and in fact when i do that she almost always already knows
0: Oh, uh, yeah, uh, good yeah, because, <laughs> yeah she <laughs> al-
1: almost already already knows that and has already started the process of fixing that so okay. i have that luxury for someone who doesn't have that luxury and and you know i'm going to name drop it. Our, our sports psychologist is michelle joshua who's, who's worked with the u.s women's national team in that capacity and she's very good at what she does and and, and really these things definitely do happen Um, and she knows, the pros know how to handle it. So I guess for someone who doesn't have that resource available to them, I would try to find out what resources are available to the child. So do they go to a, you know, Mm. is is there someone at their school? Is there a counselor at school? Is there someone they can talk to? Um, And, uh, you know, if if you feel like it's um, something that's affecting them, pretty badly and it's more than just teen drama let's say let's say it's something internal you're probably warranted in in having a conversation with the parent about that um, and saying listen i'm i I just want to let you know what i've noticed have you noticed anything like that um it's it's sensitive territory and that's why i always recommend go to a professional if you have that option available to you and if you don't have the option available to you sitting on the information is probably not the best course it's sure. for having a conversation with it uh, about it with somebody who's in a position to you know certainly a parent or, or guardian
0: i think would be the way to go yeah well and you talk about you, i'm sure in those situations the parent probably also is somewhat in tune with it. it's probably rare that a goalkeeper coach knows more about the kid's personal life than the parent, you know? <laughs> so, well, let's hope yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. And, with that would not be good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last two here. So, um, here we go. Uh, number four. So a uh, goalkeeper that has all the tools, you know, they, you know, let's say they're a little bit younger. So we'll put them around 13, 14, uh, has all the t- tools could be a really good goalkeeper, uh, but have absolutely zero interest in being there. And they're only showing up to your practice because the head coaches forced them to be there.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, we've all seen that. Yeah, I've got a pretty strong feeling about this. Goalkeeping is too hard for external motivation to be required. So, if the kid is not actually motivated to do it, if they don't really like it, they don't enjoy it, and they don't want to do it, there's almost nothing a coach can do to to long term motivate that person to be a goalkeeper. It it just it has to be an ex- in, in, internal motivation. So. Examples of external motivation, you can say to a kid, you're going to give me your best effort or, or you know, I'm going to kick sure. you out of the session or you're going to have to run or or you can try to bribe them. If you, you know, make five good saves in a row or if you stay focused throughout this session, then, I'll, you know, here's a reward of some
0: kind. Ten dollars, yeah. Yeah. yeah that,
1: <laughs> um, that just won't work long term. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. I've, I've told parents this. I've had parents say at the academy level, you know, this asked me this very right question, and it just doesn't seem that interested. Is there anything you can do to no, there's not? <laughs> it, that's who yeah. this, this person is now. They it might change as they get older. I've seen kids that are kind of iffy about it at 12, and then at 14, they decide it's really what they want, mm. and they and you see the difference in them. But if they don't have the internal motivation, think about everything a goalkeeper goes through, they're going to be. You know the deflections, the screenshots, yeah. the the fouls refs don't see, the getting blamed for a goal that's not actually your fault, or even worse, you know, making a terrible mistake that everyone can see is yours. You have to live through all those moments. If yeah. you don't genuinely want to do it, it it's too hard to go to put up with that to go through all that, you know. And so, if they're not really strongly motivated internally to do it, you, you're. You're fighting a losing battle on that one. I, I You don't abandon a kid as long as you're still in the program, as long as they're still coming to your training sessions. You coach them as you would coach anybody else. But I think you just have to recognize there, there, are, all, there are going to be some kids. And the frustrating thing is talented ones. Sometimes yeah, they're yeah. talented goalkeepers, and you as a coach, you know, have to sort of – you have to recognize that it, that doesn't change Fact that without that internal motivation, they're probably already as good as they're ever going to be, and you know they they just have to buy in. And if they don't, that's that's who they are. If they play just for fun, just to be with their friends, that's all they want out of it. Hopefully, they pay enough attention so they get a little bit better and or a little bit better in games. But you're probably just never going to get yeah, yeah a great degree of improvement from
0: from a kid like that. Yeah. All right. All right. Last one here, and I don't know this. This made the rounds on social media maybe a year ago or so ago. Um, so this it's not so much on the specific scenario, but the overarching thing. Um, but there was this goalkeeper who would, his service, uh, he wouldn't ever punt the ball, um, I don't know, ever. He wouldn't punt the ball all the time if he was going long. Um, he would do kind of a underhanded volleyball style. And I don't know if you've seen it. He would take his right oh, hand. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see it. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so so something like that of you've got a goalkeeper who's got a really unorthodox uh, service but it's actually pretty effective like they can do what they want with it you know they we can take that one or you may have one that you have thought or have seen um, but they've got something that's kind of odd and they're pretty like they they've obviously practiced it and gotten it down um a goalkeeper who's kind of got that weird tool in their back pocket how do you how do you handle them
1: use it who cares if it works <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah it, it, i remember that one yeah. I, i'm not convinced I, mean, I remember seeing video of that it's pretty amazing yes especially yeah. a volleyball serve yeah is it better than if he was pinging a side volley out there or a nice overarm throw or something i don't know if it's better but as, as long as it works um yeah i i think i had this discussion recently about what do you change in a goalkeeper you know if you if goalkeeper comes to you from a new a different club um and you don't know them and, and they have something unorthodox about them, what do you change? And I I, I don't know. I guess the older I get, the more I think. The only question that matters is, does it work? If, it's, if it works yeah. for that goalkeeper, you wouldn't necessarily coach it for another goalkeeper. But if it works for them, why not? Why not? Yeah. Just to, to to want to change it just to make them more orthodox. You know, there might be some things they do where there's a safety hazard or long-term that's going to be... sure. It's too complicated, and it's going to cost in the end, but look, if it works, I'm going to doing it. Yeah. <laughs>